Uh, good morning. So we're going to pick up um, what uh, the Apostle Luke has written about Paul's journey in chapter 25 of the book of Acts. Um, you'll remember, I think, from last week that Paul has been in Caesarea, Philip, uh, no, Caesarea on the coast of Israel. And he's been charged in, by the Jews, but brought before the Roman governor, uh, Felix. And so he's been there for two years. And I guess from time to time would go before Felix. And Felix is being replaced by another governor named Festus. And so Felix had kind of let Paul linger until Festus showed up and then let Festus take care of the issue as Felix would look at it. So in, in, in chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, we pick up the story beginning with Festus' arrival. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged uh, Festus, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill Paul on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, Ephesus went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had, heard, when, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. May God bless this reading of his word this morning and the preaching thereof. Now let's pray together as we come to God's word. Our God and our Father, as always, we come recognizing that these are not just the words of Luke, but these are the words ultimately of your Holy Spirit breathed out by way of of Luke's pen, that they are your living and active words, that they are inerrant, that they are infallible, and that they are profitable. Holy Spirit, help us understand these words and use them to convict us of sin, to recognize the need of grace in our lives, to foster gratitude in us, and to drive us more and more towards holiness. 
May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think I had a dream last night that I got up here and decided I was just going to preach the rest of the book of Acts. So I did all three chapters in one sermon, and it took like six hours, and by the time I got done, I was the only one left in the building. Um, We're not going to do that today, so verses 1 through 12 of chapter 25, and we'll just keep, keep going along here until we finish out with chapter 28. But as we come back together today to our study of the book of Acts, we, we come here to this chapter where Luke continues, as Ted said, to record for us the events of Paul's life after, remember, he had been arrested in Jerusalem and then transported down to Caesarea because the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem had plotted to kill him in Jerusalem. So last time in chapter 24, we we looked at it a few weeks ago, Paul was on trial by Felix. He was the Roman governor over the province of Judea. And you remember that Felix had summoned Paul's accusers to come down from Jerusalem, make their case against him. And this this sort of prosecuting attorney was a, a, a Jewish man named Tertullus, who accused Paul of being a troublemaker, inciting riots all around the empire wherever he went, and of being the ringleader of the the sect of the Nazarenes. So he was guilty not only of sedition, but also sectarianism. And then they also tried to accuse Paul of, of profaning and defiling the temple. So sectarianism and sedition and also heresy they accused Paul of. But Paul was very quick to show, and it was, it was easy for him to show, that his accusers had no proof. They had no witnesses to substantiate their accusations. He had lived his life above reproach. He had not been someone who stirred up trouble wherever he went. That's what they did, not him. He had not violated any Jewish laws. He had not disparaged any of the scriptures. He had not defiled the temple. To the contrary, in fact, he came and purified himself before he went into the temple. He came bringing gifts and alms and offerings to the people who were in the temple and blessed them and, and did nothing to cause any offense. And in all of that, remember Paul was able not only to defend himself against the false accusations, he was also, most importantly, able to continue testifying about the truth of Jesus Christ, the the reality of the resurrection, the truthfulness of and the power of the gospel. So Felix didn't have anything to hang Paul on. So he sent Paul's accusers away back to Jerusalem and didn't decide the case that day, but kept Paul in custody for what ended up being two years in Caesarea, during which time, remember, Paul would continue to meet with Felix and teach Felix and Felix's wife, Drusilla, all about Jesus, all about the way, all about the gospel, all about the truth of God's word. But, tragically, as we saw last time, despite all of that teaching and despite all of that interest that apparently Felix and his wife Drusilla had about the Word of God and about the way of Christ, despite all their curiosity and growing knowledge, they did not repent. They did not turn from their sins. They did not turn to Christ in living faith. We know this historically. Felix was well known in Judea, well known across the whole Roman Empire, in fact, for his immorality 
for living in sin. He was famous for how many women he had been with, for how many women he had married. He was famous for seducing at least one queen to leave her royal husband in order to be with him. And Felix was also notorious for his corruption politically. He was known to have only gotten to the place where he was politically by way of leveraging family connections and and political favors and by way of bribery. He wasn't actually competent for this job. And he was notorious for unjustly and illegally enriching himself at the great expense of the people who he was supposed to be protecting and governing and providing for. And that was looked down upon, obviously, all throughout the empire. And we see a demonstration of that right at the end of chapter 24. Luke records that a big part of the reason why Felix decided to keep Paul in custody, even though there was, there was nothing that Paul was guilty of, there was no crime that was actually proven against him, a big part of the reason Paul stayed in prison in Caesarea was because Felix was hoping to extract a bribe from Paul. He had come with a pretty substantial gift that he had given to the people in Jerusalem, having collected that from all the churches in Macedonia. And Felix thought maybe Paul was a man of means. Maybe he's got some more money stashed away somewhere. And if I keep him locked up, maybe he'll give me some of that money in order to gain his freedom. That was something Felix was known for. See, taking bribes from people in order to enrich himself at their expense. And of course, we know the other reason why Felix kept Paul in custody all this time was in order to appease the Jews. Again, it was a political maneuver. He didn't want to do anything that would be unpopular with the Jewish people or that would anger them, that would upset them. Because there was a lot of them in the province of Judea and they were influential in that part of the world. So Felix, see, the point being, he was not a moral man. He was not a righteous ruler by any stretch of the imagination. And he was not well-liked. He was not well-respected. He was not popular by anyone's standards. In the writings of Roman historians who chronicle Felix's term as governor, he he was not portrayed in any kind of good light. Tacitus said that Felix, this is a quote, Felix exercised the power of a king, but with the spirit of a slave. And that wasn't any kind of flattering statement because in that society, of course, slaves were considered to be low class and despised and more worthless than farm animals. So what Tacitus meant was that Felix liked to act like a big deal, but in reality, he was just a worthless loser. That's what Tacitus meant. That's how Felix was looked upon. And so... Luke tells us there in the closing verses of chapter 24 that when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Felix was succeeded by Festus because Felix's greed and corruption finally caught up with him. He was finally deposed and hauled back to Rome in order to be put on trial for all of the scandals and all of the bribery that he was so notorious for. And when he left, he didn't let Paul go. 
Even though he knew Paul was innocent, there was no crime that had, had even been substantiated or proven against Paul. And, and, and he, didn't, he just left him in prison. He didn't even write a letter to his successor explaining Paul's plight and situation. Remember Lysias the Tribune who brought Paul from Jerusalem to Felix? He had done that. I, I can't find anything that he's guilty of. Certainly nothing that warrants imprisonment, let alone death. So you're going to have to figure it out. No, Felix didn't even do that. He just left Paul there unceremoniously sitting in prison without any care or regard for Paul whatsoever. Now on the other hand, Felix's successor was a a very different kind of ruler than Felix had been. Festus was kind of the real deal. He was a high-ranking noble classman of, of Roman aristocracy. He had served in the Roman cavalry. He had risen up through the ranks through hard work and dedication to the emperor and to the senate. He had proven himself to be very competent as a leader, as a ruler, a, a fair-minded leader who was highly regarded by the people who were under his authority. People had good things to say about him. They were, they were thankful for him as a governor. He had um, he had he was known, even though he had strong disagreements with the Jews about a lot of things, he was known for being very tolerant of them, which, which was wise on his part because, again, especially in Judea, the, the Jews wielded a lot of influence and he knew how to be conciliatory towards them. So politically speaking, Festus was a good choice by Rome to succeed Felix. But when Festus got to Caesarea... He gets there and he finds this, this prisoner named Paul in his custody. And he, he, he doesn't have much to go on in terms of what to do with Paul. Now presumably there's got to have been some kind of record, probably some written record, of Paul's time there in the prison and how he'd been brought up from Jerusalem and how the Jews had leveled accusations against him. And So Festus, Festus must have had... Some record, okay, well, two years ago they brought him here, but there were no charges that stuck against him. He's not guilty, but he's, he's got to be a little confused because nothing in the record indicates Paul's guilt, and yet the fact that he's been left in prison for two years leaves no indication of, of Paul's innocence. What do I do with this guy? So pretty quickly, only three days after he arrives in Judea, Luke says in verse 1 now of chapter 25, Portius Festus went up to Jerusalem in order to hear directly from the Jews exactly what they had against Paul. And once again, we see that the leaders of the Jewish community, the leaders of the temple, so we're talking about the priests, we're talking about the Sanhedrin again here, these men who called themselves men of God, once again we see how staunchly determined they were not just to falsely accuse Paul, not just to lie and bear false witness and violate God's law in accusing Paul falsely. They weren't just determined to see Paul found guilty by the Romans at the expense of the truth so that Paul would be locked up forever. Even a full step beyond that, they wanted to kill him. That's what they really want. They want Paul dead. 
And, and they don't have any confidence or any reason to think that the Romans are going to execute him. So once again, these Jewish people are prepared to take matters into their own hands. And they're not real original, right? They've tried this same stunt before, and God had providentially thwarted it, foiled it. So they think they're just going to try it again. They're going to try to get Festus to have Paul sent up there to Jerusalem so that he can be ambushed along the way and murdered, assassinated. So notice when Paul or when Luke says there in verse 3, uh, because they were planning to ambush or kill him on the way, I don't think that, that they told Festus that. I think they, they did the same thing. They said that, that they had tried to pull with Lysias back in Jerusalem. They said, you know what? We, we'd like to, well, since you're here, Festus, we'd like to have Paul brought back up so that we can all interview him and, and talk to him with you and, and then you'll understand what he's guilty of. Knowing and purposing that he would never get there. That was their real plan. But Festus didn't do it. He didn't go for it. And whether or not it was because he was wise to their scheme, I don't know. But he said, you know what, actually, I'm going to be heading back to Caesarea pretty soon. Why don't you guys come down there with me and then we can all deal with this there in my palace and with all of the Roman guards around. So maybe Festus was no dummy, made a pretty smart call there. But at any rate, God's providence was once again at work. Now, in this passage, just like back in chapter 24, Luke is simply reporting the news, so to speak, right? He's just narrating the facts. He's, he's chronicling the events. This isn't quite like the book of Romans or Galatians or Ephesians where, where there are big sort of systematically doctrinal truths being spelled out and laid out clearly here. This is, this is a narrative passage where it's, it's simply a, a reporting of the events that happened and how they transpired. But under the surface of these events that might seem sort of mundane, from one perspective at least, under the surface there, there are always buried some rich treasures of biblical truth for us to be able to dig up and focus on. And that's, that's how we treat these kinds of passages. God's at work. God's showing us things. God's teaching us important truths through these historical events. And one of the things that we need to focus on and learn might not seem like a beautiful treasure, might not seem like a, a glimmering gemstone of a treasure that's lovely to gaze upon, but it's a critical truth nonetheless for us to always be reminded of over and over and over again for our own sake. And that is this, it's the truth of the binding power of human sinfulness, the binding power of human sinfulness. Look at it, demonstrated in the lives of these Jewish leaders who call themselves godly men and put themselves off as being the most mature, the most godly, the most learned in terms of the scriptures and the law of God among the people of God. Behold the binding power of sin in their lives despite all of their knowledge of the law and the word of God. Didn't Jesus say himself in John chapter 8 and verse 34, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's a, that's a strong statement, see? By our Lord Himself. Slave is that Greek word doulos that we were looking at last week when we were talking about Paul being a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And Paul, that, that word was a powerful word in that society. A bond slave had, had no rights of his own. A slave had no ability to try to determine the, the course of his own destiny in life and exercise any kind of rights of his own because he didn't have any. He simply existed in that society to do the will of his master. And that is the word that Paul uses to say, you want to know what defines me? It's not my past experiences. It's not my dreams and ambitions. It is the fact that I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. I exist to do his will and nothing else in this world, in this life. Right? That's the power of the word doulos, and Jesus uses it on the other hand to describe the reality of sin in human lives. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In other words, you can't do anything else but sin. It defines every aspect of your humanity according to the the natural course of your life as you come into this world. That's a big deal, right? Paul was a bond slave of Jesus, but before he was, he was living in bondage to sin. Human sinfulness is not a trifling matter, even though every time we sin, we tend to, we we do it first in the first place because we take sin lightly, and then we tend to respond to it lightly. Human sinfulness is not something that the Word of God treats Lightly, and it's imperative that we don't let the world out there define for us the natural condition of the human heart, right? The world says that the human heart, the human soul, the, the basic essence of, of humanness is, is naturally good. Human beings come into this world basically good, and then some of them become corrupted by influences outside of themselves so that they end up doing bad things. That's not what God's Word says. God says in His Word that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. It's talking about Adam. Sin came into the world through Adam. And, 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 and Paul's saying there in Romans 5, Adam didn't just leave a bad example. For all of his offspring who were born naturally good to follow the bad example. Paul's teaching that as the head of the human race, Adam's sin affected all of his offspring, all of us as human beings. And not just the consequence of his sin. Not, it didn't just affect us in terms of the death that comes because of sin. That's not the only thing that affected the whole human race. Death isn't the only thing that spread to all men, right? Paul says that the reason that death spread to all men through Adam is because sin itself spread to all men through Adam. We didn't just inherit the penalty, we inherited the the condition, the disease of spiritual corruption and animosity towards God. 
from Adam. That's what, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what God teaches in his word. And, and Paul's unambiguously clear about this, right? Especially like in a place like Romans chapter 3, where he says that all human beings, whether they're Gentiles or Jews, all human beings are under sin in this way. That's, that's his words in Romans 3 verse 9. And then, of course, he goes on and he lays it all out, right? None is righteous. None. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They've all turned aside. They've all become worthless. No one does good. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, poisonous snakes, is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruined in misery. The way of peace they have not known, for there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's verses 10 through 18 of Romans chapter 3. Paul, Paul covers it all, and he's quoting the Old Testament scriptures in those verses in order to prove from God's word that human sinfulness is not only universal in its scope, right? All humans, without exception. It's also total in its degree, which means that not only are all human beings inherently sinful, it also means that sin affects every aspect of us as human beings so that we are totally under its bondage in our lives. So, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, right? Human sin is universal in scope. And it affects every aspect of all human beings. They don't understand. It affects our minds. Uh, It affects our mouths and what we say. It affects our feet and what we do, where we go, why we go there. It affects our hands. It affects every aspect of our humanness. There is no fear of God in their eyes. That's the essence of sinfulness. Now, that doesn't mean that every human being always does the most wickedly sinful, evil thing possible without fail all the time. But it does mean this. It does mean that no human being is capable of doing anything, even things that are outwardly good things to do, without it actually being done sinfully. You get that? In our natural state as sinners, apart from Christ, being dead in our trespasses and sins, as the Bible says, unable to do anything that pleases God, we do things that are not inherently bad, oftentimes, by God's good and common grace, which we'll see in a few minutes here. But we don't do those things that are good in and of themselves. We don't do them without them being sinful. We we do them sinfully. Romans 8, verses 7 to 8. Paul is, in that passage, contrasting the unbeliever with the believer. He says the unbeliever is defined by the fact that their mind is set on the flesh. Where the believer, on the other hand, is defined as someone whose mind is set on the Spirit of God. And here's what Paul says. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's impossible for a sinner, an unbeliever, in his natural sinful state, to submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And you say, well, you know, 
God might command that it's good to feed the poor, and I see unbelievers doing that all the time, yeah, but they're not doing it in submission to God. They're doing it sinfully, even though it's a good thing to do. So, when God talks about human sinfulness in His Word, this is what we're talking about, right? Not the outward things that human beings do first and foremost, but but the inward reasons why we do them. Is it to please God? Is our mind naturally set on Him? No. It's naturally set on us, on our flesh, on our desires. We don't come into this world wanting to honor God. The person whose mind is set on the flesh is set on their own desires instead of God's glory and pleasure and honor. And whatever we do or do not do as unbelievers, we do for our own sake, for our own benefit first, and not for Him who made us in His image. That's what makes it sin. Whether it's murder or, or feeding the poor, that's what makes it sinful. Some things are sinful in themselves, and sinful people do those things. Other things are good in and of themselves, and sinful people do those things sinfully. And God tells us clearly that all people are sinners like this in Adam and that everything that we do as sinners is done sinfully. And that's what Jesus meant when he said that we are all slaves to sin in John chapter 8. It's impossible for us to please God, right? It's impossible for us to do anything in our lives, even a thing that's good in and of itself in a way that honors and pleases God because of the nature of our hearts. There's this... There's this reality that governs all of us. And then there's another reality about sin, which is this. Sin begets sin. Sin multiplies like rabbits in our lives, like a mold infestation in our lives, like cancer cells in our bodies, malignant cells that go and invade all different kinds of parts of the body. And unless they're dealt with, they just will destroy That's sin. Sin begets sin. It doesn't sit still. It likes to multiply. There's this tendency for sinners who indulge in sinful desires and things to progress into greater sinful desires and greater sinful behaviors. James talks about this just for one place in, in God's Word, right? The ladies have been studying the book of James on Tuesday mornings. James chapter 1. James talking about temptation. We all experience temptation to do sinful things. Where's the temptation come from? Well, he forbids anyone to blame God for it. God can't be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each per- it's your fault if, if you succumb to temptation. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then he uses the analogy of Conception and birth and life and death to describe the progress of sin in the life of sinful people. It all starts with sinful desire, which is inherent to your sinful flesh. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Stuff that you do and say and think and attitudes that you have. And then sin, when it is full grown, now it's growing, progressing, brings forth death. This is how it works and it always leads towards destruction. 
James also describes that kind of progression again over in chapter 4 of his letter, right? What causes quarrels and fights among you? What's the, what's the root cause? Is it not this? Your passions, your desires are at war within you. Sinful, fleshly desires luring and enticing and tempting. Here's the progression. They conceive, they give birth, you desire, you don't have, so you murder, death. You cause somebody else's death because you want what they have bad enough. It matters more to you than they do that you're willing to kill for it. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So see, this is how it works. James is just laying out the obvious. Fights between people, quarrels between people, outbursts of anger, physical violence, murder, don't just happen for no good reason. They are the result of sinful human desires and of yielding to those desires in a progressive fashion, right? Yielding to sinful desires leads to greater desires, which leads to greater sin. Coveting can lead to theft. It can lead to quarreling. It can lead to murder. In other words, please understand, do not ever take lightly the presence of sinful desire even in your flesh and in your life. Satan would love for you to think, well, you know, I can't do anything about my desires. It's no big deal. It's not my fault. James says, look, these desires of yours that are sinful are your sin. Don't take them lightly because they conceive and give birth to sinful behaviors, all of which are aiming towards death, sometimes for others and ultimately for you and ultimately eternally. Do not ever take lightly the presence of sinful desire in your flesh. Satan would love for you to think it's no big deal, that it's common, it's what everybody feels, it's what everybody experiences, so that then you just leave it unchecked in your life. Because if you leave it unchecked in your life, it's going to grow. It's going to fester like cancer in the body. And it, it will lead further and further towards disaster and destruction and death. And see, this is exactly where these leaders of the Jewish people are at, right? These Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and scribes and teachers of God's Word and law are, are absolutely, sin is festering in them. They're supposed to be the godly ones. Regularly exposed to the living active Word of God, to the worship of God. But what they're focused on the most is not the glory of God or the pleasure of God, but their own sinful pride, their own fleshly passions and desires. And all of those unchecked sinful passions that they have not repented of are, are, are like toxic molds spreading in the souls of these men, like malignant cancer within them, such that they've become blinded by these sinful passions, blinded to the truth of God's Word, blinded to the truth that Jesus Christ is the obvious fulfillment of all of God's... Have you read Isaiah 53? Hello, He's here, He's done it. No, 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 we don't want to hear that, we don't want to see that. He's the embodiment of all of the promises of God, and they nailed Him to a cross, and now they're ready to kill Paul the same way. Just for saying Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. 
festering. Sin is festering so much that in their sin, they're hostile towards God. Like literally hostile towards the gospel, hostile towards Paul. So much that they feel perfectly justified in trying to assassinate Paul and murder him. Did you know that you can get swept away by the waters of a rushing river that are less than knee-deep? You don't have to be in a river up to your neck for it to sweep you downstream. And a lot of people find out the hard way because, you know, they think I'm a big, strong person and I can wade out into this river because the water won't even get up over my knees. And then it sweeps their legs out from under them. And now they're, now they're at its mercy. They can't put their feet down. They can't grab any purchase anywhere. And whatever's lying downstream, rapids, waterfalls, that's their destiny now. Listen, do not ever underestimate the subtle, seductive, alluring bondage of sin in the human life. And its power through the currents of sinful passions and desires to carry you off into the depths of sinful words, which are a world of unrighteousness that can set the the entire course of a life on fire, James says, let alone sinful actions that can and do destroy marriages, families, Children, lives, all the time. Whatever overcomes a person, to that is he enslaved, says Peter. And these Jewish religious leaders were overcome by the rushing river of their own sinful passions and desires. They were enslaved to their own sins so much. That, that we're not even just talking about the heat of a moment now. You know that moment where you're talking to somebody and you're disagreeing and, and it's your passions that you're focused on the most and not loving them and honoring God and, and you can feel anger welling up within you and frustration welling up within you and all of a sudden you're saying things that are hurtful and harmful and then you might shove them. You might sin against them. That, we're not talking about the heat of a moment here. These guys are so enslaved to sin... That, that not just in a flash of uncontrolled rage, but in the premeditation of their wicked hearts and minds, which now they have fostered for the last two years, they're ready to set ambush for Paul and murder him in cold blood and be, feel perfectly justified for it. Don't take sin lightly. Don't think it can't carry you there too if it's left unchecked in your life. You're not better than them, neither am I. There's nothing intrinsic about Steve that's more holy, that's more self-controlled, that's more righteous than any of these guys, save for the power of Christ and His grace and His Word working in me. And if you think that this kind of thing is beyond you in and of yourself, Satan's got you fooled and you're in danger. Another truth that lies beneath the surface of this narrative that Luke records is the truth that that even as the currents of human sinfulness rage throughout this world, even as we are constantly aware 
as Christians, as, as people who have been made new in Christ now, of the binding power of human sinfulness that is causing devastation and destruction all around us, we also need to be aware of the sovereignty of God over all human affairs that manifests itself in providence, we talked about a few weeks ago, in what we call common grace. God causes, Jesus says, the sun to shine and the rain to fall, both on the just and the unjust, both on believers and unbelievers. Every every hell-bound pagan who's not worshiping God and is worshiping their own desires is still breathing air out there by God's common grace. Sometimes, by God's common grace, they come to conclusions about what's right and wrong that are in keeping with God's Word. Sometimes they feel compelled to do those things because by God's sovereign providence in this world, He's restraining sin so that sinners don't always do the worst possible things that they can imagine or do. We need to be aware of that. We talked about providence, right? Several weeks ago, three, four weeks ago now, when we were back in chapter 23, remember? Paul was still up in Jerusalem in the barracks of the Antonia Fortress, being guarded by a thousand Roman soldiers. And this is when the Jews first tried to lure him out in the open so they could ambush him and and, and murder him. They they took an oath, remember? We're not going to... Forty guys said, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. And they tell the Pharisees this. That's how perverse their sense of right and wrong had become because of the bondage of sin in their lives. They're, They're taking oaths before God while plotting cold-blooded murder. Steve Duncan and I were laughing about that after the service that week, thinking about what must have become of these oath-taking murderers. We're not going to eat her what's been two years now. (laughs) Did they keep their oath? If they did, they'd they'd all be dead, because Paul's not dead. And if they haven't eaten or drunk anything in two years, somehow I doubt it though, right? Somehow I doubt that they were that serious about being faithful to their oath that they'd taken before God. I think they forgot pretty quick. But we talked about God's providence as the priceless treasure that was buried beneath the surface of that passage, right? As God sovereignly orchestrated all of the events so that Paul's nephew somehow happened to be in Jerusalem at just the right time and exactly in the right place to hear about this plot against Paul's life. And he was allowed into the Antonia Fortress to be able to tell Paul and and tell the tribune Lysias, who listened by God's common grace and then spirited Paul out of Jerusalem by night and up to Caesarea. That sermon's on the website now, by the way. We had trouble with the CDs that week and couldn't get it uploaded and several of you asked about it and it's up there now thanks to Larry Taylor Um, but we see again here right as the we, we see God's providence at work again here as the as the wicked plot of the Jews is once again foiled once again thwarted by God's providence through an unbelieving Roman governor not not someone who's a bond slave of Jesus Christ I mean, the Sanhedrin say, you know, you've come to us to ask us what Paul did wrong. Why don't you bring him down here? And then we'll tell you all about it. Festus could very easily have found that request 
to be a reasonable one. And innocent, innocent enough, sure, that's a good idea. Let's bring them down. We know from history that Festus exhibited this tendency to grant things to the Jews in order to conciliate them, to keep good relationships with them. So this would have been a pretty easy request for him to grant, but he didn't. And, and whether or not it was because he suspected their true intentions doesn't matter nearly so much as the reality that God is sovereign over all of the affairs of His universe and all of human life, and that in His providence, Paul twice was saved from ambush and assassination through the decisions of Roman rulers who don't know God. Lysias and Festus weren't, they weren't given visions by God like prophets. They weren't praying to God for wisdom in dealing with Paul. They weren't tuned in at all to the will of God in their own lives. These guys are unbelievers. These guys are living themselves under the bondage of human sinfulness, and yet it's restrained by the sovereignty of God. The indomitable authority of the sovereignty of God over human affairs ensured that these godless men would end up working out the purposes of God. That's encouraging, isn't it? So you say, man, it... This, this truthfulness about how horrible sin is, we can see it out there at work. We can see it festering and decaying and corrupting and destroying. And that can be alarming and cause us a lot of consternation. Be encouraged that over it all and under it all and even through it all, your God is sovereign. In this world where human sinfulness rages and evil and wickedness and immorality and violence surge like a tempestuous ocean all around us. In this world where Satan roams around as a roaring lion seeking whom to devour, you must know greater is he who is in us than him who is in this world. And as terrifyingly powerful as Satan is, and he is, and as terrifying as all of the wickedness and destruction that, that Satan spawns into this world is, but as, as he tempts and deceives sinful people into doing evil and destructive things, Satan cannot hope to compete with the sovereign will and power of Almighty God, who is his creator and his sovereign, even if Satan won't bow. God will still reign. Jesus Christ, who is all the fullness of deity in bodily form, He is the one who came into this world, into Satan's house, the strong man's house, Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, and bound the strong man, Jesus did. Bound the devil, He says. Put the roaring lion on a leash so that Jesus could plunder Satan's house with the gospel power and love of God. The sovereign Lord Jesus Christ is the one who, who partook of human flesh and blood Himself so that through His own death on the cross, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Hebrews 2, verse 14. The devil can't contend with Jesus. Our God is the one who sovereignly and providentially orchestrated all of the events, remember in the book of Genesis, of Joseph's life. And of his brothers' lives. 
and of the slave traders who his brothers sold him to their lives, and of the lives of the Egyptians, even Pharaoh himself, so that through all of that, what Joseph's brothers initially meant for evil, God purposed and worked out for good. He was betrayed by his own brothers. They were jealous of him, so they threw him into a hole in the ground, sold him into slavery. He ended up imprisoned in Egypt, but was marvelously raised up by God's sovereign hand to be at Pharaoh's right hand as Pharaoh's most trusted, powerful ambassador in Egypt beside Pharaoh himself. So that when Joseph's brothers came down there looking for food in the midst of a famine, Joseph would be able to help them. And he would look his traitorous brothers in the eye with grace and say, yeah, you guys really blew it. You guys really sinned, but you know what? In that sin, around that sin, under that sin, through that sin, God was sovereign. God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on this earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not ultimately you who sent me here, but God. Can you say that when somebody sins against you? It's bad. It's terrible. God's going to deal with you. You better repent. But ultimately, as far as I'm concerned, and what its impact on me is, I'm going to put my confidence and hope and trust in whatever sovereign purposes God has for this. God sent me here. And He has made me right next to Pharaoh, Lord over all his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt, so that if you need grain, I can give you all the grain you need. That's Genesis 45, verses 7 and 8. God is the one who sovereignly humbled Nebuchadnezzar, the most arrogant man on the face of the earth who marched against Jerusalem and laid waste to it and slaughtered people mercilessly and hauled slaves back to live in Babylon for 70 years. And God took him by the nape of his neck and shoved him down on the ground literally and made him crawl on his hands and knees and eat grass like a cow for seven years. And then God graciously restored him so that Nebuchadnezzar would sing his praises. That's what God can do in and through and to the evildoers of this world. God's the one who sovereignly directs the hearts of kings like pathways of water in order to carry out His sovereign purposes in this world, even when those rulers don't know God, don't follow His will deliberately in their own lives, right? Remember Isaiah chapter 45, one of my favorite passages, first sermon I ever preached was on Isaiah 45. God says to Cyrus by name like 150 years before the guy's even born, names him predictively, prophetically in the book of Isaiah, says to Cyrus, I will raise you up. Now Cyrus is one of the most impressive and successful military expansionists known to history. Never knew God. Never trusted God. Never did any of that in the name of God or for the glory of God. But God says, I will raise you up. Any success you'll know is because of me and my sovereignty in your life. I will establish you. I will equip you. Though you do not know me. 
even though Cyrus was a godless, unbelieving, wicked conqueror, God accomplished his sovereign purposes through Cyrus so that one day the Israelites would be freed from their captivity in Babylon by the decree of Cyrus who conquered Babylon. And God sits in heaven, does all that he pleases. Nebuchadnezzar's own words, after being humbled, after being restored, the most high rules the kingdom of men. He does whatever He wants. He gives it to whom He will. He sets over it the lowliest of men. In John chapter 7, people are pressing all around Jesus. There's a great throng of people. They're angry. They're fit to be tied. They've got murder in their blood. They're trying to arrest Him in order to seize Him and kill Him. But, But somehow, in all of that throng, pressing in to get to this one guy, No one was able to lay a hand on him because, John says, his hour had not not yet come. It wasn't time. If it's not time for you to die, you're not going to die. It wasn't God's purpose yet for Jesus to be seized or arrested yet. And so no matter how hard that throng tried, they couldn't do it. Can you rest, Christian? In that great truth and reality that in spite of the bondage of human sinfulness and its massively destructive power in this world, can you rest in the reality that the sovereignty of God rules over all of the affairs of men and none can stay His hand? He sits in heaven and does all that He pleases. He holds Satan on an unbreakable chain. He always accomplishes his purposes and none can stay his sovereign almighty hand. Paul could rest. Paul could rest knowing that even as Felix refused to release him, even as the Jews plotted to kill him, even as he remained imprisoned by unbelieving Romans, God never sleeps nor slumbers. God's always with him. And God's divine purposes could never be thwarted and would always be carried out. So Festus now comes back to Caesarea where Paul's sitting there in prison. The Jews come with Festus, unable now to ambush Paul, unable to murder Paul. So again, they, they level many serious charges against him, Luke says there in verse 7. But they couldn't prove a single one of them. Here again, even in godless Rome, by God's sovereign providential common grace, their system of justice, their system of jurisprudence required proof. You can't just accuse somebody of something and then, well, okay, because you said to kill them. Even the Romans who worshipped false gods and elevated their own emperor as God had a system of justice that reflected the reality of God's law. So, no proof. And once again, like we've seen before, Paul made an easy defense. Just summed up this time, in the same way that we saw in more detail last time. Verse 8 says, Paul says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Right? Shrug, right? I mean, we've been here before. We've covered all this ground before. You've got no case. 
You've got no proof. You've got no witnesses. And all the facts are contrary to what you're claiming. And you know it. And so does Festus. So does Festus. But just like Felix before him, ultimately Festus yields to political considerations. More than what he ought to have done, because Paul was innocent, no charges, it stuck for two years. He should have just let Paul go. He should have just said, okay guys, thanks to the, to the Jew. You guys go back to Jerusalem and then told Paul, I'm going to let you go. And you get, I don't know, maybe a three, four day running head start here before they try to catch up with you and kill you. That's what he should have done. But he didn't do that, right? Verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favor, Festus said to Paul, do you, this is a dumb question, but do you want to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there on these charges before me? Yeah, that's kind of a hard pass for Paul. Uh, no thanks. Don't think I want to go back to Jerusalem with these guys. And so he says in verse 10, this is right where I should be. This is exactly where I need to be tried. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Look, to the Jews I have done no wrong. You yourself know very well. They got nothing on me. So I'm here to be tried by you. I'm here to be tried by Caesar. If you can find some crime that I'm guilty of that's worthy of death, I will gladly accept the penalty. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Don't turn me over to those guys. I appeal to Caesar. Bring it on, Paul says. If I'm guilty of any crime worthy of death, bring it. I'm not afraid to die. I don't escape, I don't seek to escape death because Paul, fully aware of the bondage and power of human sinfulness, is is more confident yet in the great power of the sovereignty of God over all human affairs. And so for him to live is Christ. I don't got to worry as long as I'm a bond slave of Christ. Long as I'm trusting Christ, long as I'm obeying Christ, long as I'm serving Christ, long as I'm walking according to the wisdom of Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Philippians 1.21 Because then I would get to be with Christ forever and not have to worry about these guys and all this bondage and power of human sinfulness anymore. Despite the bondage and power of human sinfulness, despite how it was being expressed to him, especially by the Jews, and because of Paul's unflagging confidence in the sovereignty and goodness of God, and because of Paul's unrelenting commitment to the will of God, he's got no fear of what those people might do to him. And he's not motivated by his own desire for freedom. And so he appeals to Festus to let him be tried by Caesar himself. If you can't find anything wrong with me, then send me to Caesar. Because Caesar's in Rome, right? And the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ has already told Paul back in verse 11 of chapter 23, Take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so also must you testify in Rome. That's the plan. Already that Paul's committed to because it's God's plan, because it's God's will. 
and Paul was laser focused on the will of God above his own will. He was thoroughly prepared to be sent to Rome. He knew he couldn't escape going to Rome because Jesus has said that's where you're going to end up. And so Festus says, to Caesar have you appealed, to Caesar shall you go. And when Paul got there, he was, again, by God's good providence, imprisoned, but initially in a house under Roman guard, not not the dank, sort of filthy maritime prison that he would eventually end up, end up in and, and die in. At first, he was under house arrest. He was allowed to rent a place and live there, go about his business in the house and in the yard around the house, guards around to make sure he didn't leave the property. He could rest comfortably. He could have visitors. He could write letters, which he did like the book of Philippians, where he says to the church and the believers up in Philippi and Macedonia who are really worried about him because they've heard what he's been going through these last two years. Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that all this that has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's what he cares about. So that at his, the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard here in Rome and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word themselves without fear. I love that so much, don't you? Jesus said, you must testify about me in Rome. Providentially, he orchestrates Paul's transfer to Rome once Paul got there, he got to work. I'm here to testify about Jesus. Where should I start? How about with the guard sitting outside my front door? And from there, somehow, because our God sits in heaven and does all that He pleases, by the sovereign, almighty providence of God, the whole imperial guard in Rome ends up hearing the Gospel. And all of the Christians, not just in Rome, but everywhere else, throughout the empire, as they hear about this, they get strengthened and emboldened themselves in spite of the currents of sin that rage in this world against them, in spite of the roaring lion of Satan, they get bold about speaking the word without fear. I'm going to serve Christ, and if they kill me, they kill me. If they don't, maybe, maybe it'll be like Paul, and God will use whatever suffering and persecution to glorify himself and, and make the gospel spread. To live is Christ. To die is gain. A.W. Tozer said, it's, it's not death. It's sin that should be our greatest fear. And that's a great summary of this narrative here in Acts chapter 25. And in our sinfulness, we, we flip that, right? We get that backward all the time, right? We live for self. We live for comfort. We live for worldly success and treasures. We fear death mostly. We live for now. We live for self. And we take sin lightly. And live in danger of being swept up by its currents. And the current leads to everlasting death. Christians, don't fear death now. Fear sin. And where it can take you. Don't take it lightly. 
Don't take it lightly. Understand the horrible danger of the bondage of sin. Realize its terrible power that is wielded in your life to overcome you and enslave you and sweep you off your feet and carry you toward the deadly falls of destruction in this life and in the next. Fear sin. And as you do, because your God is sovereign, don't fear death. To live is Christ, who is with you, who is sovereign, whose purposes cannot be overturned. To die in service to Him, no matter what the cost, is gain. Amen? Father God, thank you for your word where you don't just unfold for us great truths in systematic fashion, Father, in propositional statements about your nature and your character. You also reveal to us that you're at work through the courses of human history and in the events of of lives like the Apostle Paul's as we have recorded here for us in the book of Acts to reveal to us, Father, the way that you work and the way that things are. And so would you teach us to see our lives in the same way that Paul did? To fear sin and to hate sin. And to not fear death, but to serve Christ who holds the keys to death and Hades in His hand. And so, Father, may we be bold and may we be courageous and may we be valiant and strong in Your strength to serve You in this world and to put sin to death in our mortal bodies and to glorify You in our mortal bodies and to be useful to You in bringing the Gospel and the light of Your truth to bear in the world around us. Father, we love You. We trust You. And we thank You. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.